yesterday in our study of the vision of Zacharias, considering the concept of lamps and lights in Scripture, and we said that lamps, as referenced in Zechariah 4, is figuratively used of progeny. And then we commenced on the overhead to show the progression of lights and lamps in Scripture, beginning with the little individual lamps as we all start out with, and the progression through Scripture of the single-dimensional menorah in the mosaic order, or parentheses of things as I like to look at it. And you remember that in the provision of that olive oil, it was an option for those to participate in providing the oil. It It was a commandment, but it was still left up to the discretion of the individuals to participate in preparing pure olive oil Uh, beaten fine to be burned in the menorah lamp in the holy place. Now, Israel, as in the encampment, would never get into the holy place to see how the oil they contributed was lighting this fixture, would they? They had to, therefore, in their mind's eye, i.e., we call it uh, faith, visualize how that lamp would give off light. And we would have to conclude that in Daniel 5, where you have the cavorting of Belshazzar, where he got out the golden implements that had been hauled off from the temple in Jerusalem uh, on that night of the drunken celebration, the silent witness was the lampstand, standing over against the wall, was it not? where the hand came out and wrote the condemnation on the wall. So there the lampstand stood in silent witness to what was going to happen. And we would probably conclude that that same lampstand then came back to Israel under the restoration and would then be relit as Zerubbabel finished the building of that temple, thus the continuity of the light and the lampstand at that time. Now, I want to hone in on something which I think is real interesting. You know, we said that the two trees represented the Jewish and the Gentile tree, as in Romans 11. And from their produce, eventually we have the product of a new creation, a new creature represented by these golden spigots, i.e. call it the spiritual Israel now, Jew and Gentile, represented here through the sons of Zadok, and now contributing to the administration of this kingdom age apparatus. Now, we look at the close of Zechariah 4 and look at verse 14. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, the Lord of the whole earth 
And we have to look at this lampstand, which we said represented the multitudinous uh, saints in Christ. Well, let's go back a step further and say the whole thing is an example of God manifestation, is it not? Yahweh is represented here as well. This then is the Lord of the whole earth in verse 14. Who are the two anointed ones that also may be referenced as sons of oil? So, we would equate that to these two golden spiritual Israel conduits pictured here. Do we have any other scriptural uh, evidence that we might be able to say is depicting this in a different manner? I submit we do. Let's turn up 1 Kings 6.23, please. Because this is most interesting, I think. These two sons of oil, these two anointed ones, are depicted here, I would suggest, beginning with 1 Kings 6, verse 20. Now, it's no coincidence that the word olive, as in olive trees, and as in the cores of these two giant cherubim that were to go into Solomon's temple were made of olive wood. And olive in the Hebrew word means to illuminate. We've been talking about that, haven't we? This is an illuminating apparatus. Olive means to illuminate. Cherubim, you remember from two Hebrew words, K and Rab? Resemblance of the majesty. The cherubim are the illuminators of Yahweh, in other words. Now, verse 20. And the inner sanctuary of the forepart was 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in breadth and 20 cubits in the height of it and overlaid with pure gold. So the most holy place was 20 cubits square. A cube, right? Verse 23. And within the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive tree. And five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. And from the outermost part of the one wing unto the outermost part of the other was ten cubits. Okay. On the overhead then I've tried to show that we have two cherubim. We have the size Restrictions of the most holy place, 20 cubits square. You pack these two giant cherubim in there, wingtip to wingtip, and their wingtips are literally touching both sides of the most holy place. They are pushing the boundaries of the most holy place. They are made of, they are made of olive wood. Now, the chances of the Jewish craftsmen of going out there and finding olive trees big enough to fit this configuration to hew this, I submit, is next to nil. So we have to key off on the concept of in Romans 11, they were grafted. We have the phrase grafting, you recall. God broke off 
a portion of the Jewish branches, and he was telling us later on he can graft them back in. We know what grafting is about. You notch it and you put a slip in. In woodworking, we have the phrase laminating. We have the phrase um, splicing. So I would submit that these giant cherubim were probably spliced and laminated in order to come up with the size and the shape that they needed. That's just that's just a little, uh, call that prophetic um, ruminating, if you wish. But we've got these two uh, sons of oil, is where I'm going with this thought, bursting the confines of Solomon's most holy place. Now go over to verse 27. And he set the cherubim within the inner house, and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one touched the one wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched one another in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. And he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers within and without. For my two cents, I think the tree of life was a palm tree. Now you go down to 32. The two doors also were of olive trees, and he carved upon them carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and overlaid them with gold and spread gold upon the cherubim and upon the palm trees. Now turn over to 1 Kings 8, please. And we are honing in on verse 6. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim covered the ark, and it stays above. So you get the picture here. Huge, giant cherubim, wooden olive wood cores, which means to illuminate. Let's hope our core is olive wood, figuratively right. Uh, full of oil that goes and contributes somehow to the illumination of Yahweh's plan and purpose. All of us aspiring in the future to be covered with gold. Now, this then, they slid in the little Ark of the Covenant, roughly the little three-foot-high Ark of the Covenant, you recall, solid golden lid with the two smaller cherubim on top of it, slid it underneath the wings of these two larger prophetic sons of oil. What's the message? We go back to Matthew 5, don't we? What did Jesus say there? He's not come to destroy the law of the prophets. He has come to fulfill so, the law of the prophets will be fulfilled in and through Christ, and that's what's pictured in this picture. Now, verse 8, and they drew out the staves. It was to be a picture of permanence, wasn't it? That the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they were not seen outside. Only the household knows and understands this type of visionary, doesn't it? And the world does not. And in the kingdom age, the world, the nations that are left, will not have privy or access to the most holy place in this regard. 
it will still be under the administration of the sons of Zadok and the Levitical priesthood. Now, verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except the two tables of stone which Moses put there in Horeb. What happened to the contents? Aaron's rod that budded was gone, and the golden pot of manna was consumed. The resurrection is past. This is post-resurrectional, is it not? When the two sons of oil do their work in the kingdom age as represented by the lampstand apparatus. What's left, though? The two tables of stone. This tells us that the Ten Commandments will continue to be the touchstone or the bedrock of law and order and kingdom age administration. Now you go over and you finish that in verse 11. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So this then would conclude our progression of lights. And you notice then on the overhead again, references made to Revelation 21, 23. And what do we have going on in Revelation 21, 23? We are in the eighth day. Darkness has been crowded out of the millennial age because we know there is a dark side to the millennial age. Anytime you have to reference that the nations will not come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, you know there is a spirit of rebellion that has to eventually be dealt with. Once that spirit of rebellion is dealt with, the last enemy being death, then we have the eighth day, and that's verse 22 of 21, and I saw no temple in it that's rendered inner sanctuary or nave, we now have the most holy place inverted, if you will, and now the eighth day reflects the entire contents and design of the most holy place. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did light it, and the Lamb is the lamp of it. So this you may continue to ruminate on because I submit this is a cursory discussion of it and this is a vision that you may ruminate on literally all your lives. Now we're ready for the next vision, vision number six. The vision is found in Zechariah 5 and it's a look back because that begins with, Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying scroll. So we're looking back from these wonderful visions of the kingdom age, and we're looking back into history. And what history reveals in this vision is not very pleasant. And it's probably the least understood of the visions, these seven visions that we have here. Six is the number of flesh, uh, it's a reiteration of the corruption of God's way. It's like Daniel and the Apocalypse are. It gives you a look forward of visions of glory and resolution. It gives you a look back as to how that situation developed. Look forward, look back. We're looking back now into history. The revival uh, in Israel under 
Zerubbabel um, was contrasted to Israel today, and it was to teach that there was a hard lesson that purity of worship had to replace material worship. Now, we have mentioned then this ribbon effect, this looking back situation. Jeremiah 5, verse 30, on the overhead, references the situation. An appalling and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. What will you do in the end of it all? Well, the end of it all was to be 70 A.D., and we know what the end of it all happened at that time. Now, back in Zechariah 5, 4, let's, let's, um, let me read this, the first three verses. Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is twenty cubits, and its breadth ten cubits. Then said he unto me, This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth, for every one that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and every one that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. So we have a flying scroll which had writing on both sides of it, which was to go forth into history from the time of Zerubbabel on through Jewish history, and it was to be an indictment of what they were guilty of. One only needs to read the book of Hosea to get a grip on what those sins and indictments were. And it was then to be, it's tied into the rest of that vision. Now, in Zechariah 5.4, then, these indictments, declares the Lord, will be remembered and will God's people. This was to occur a number of times as they struggled under the next two horn powers. You recall the four carpenters and the, and the four horns. So now what was to be played out were the Grecian horn was coming online and then lastly that great iron horn. So this indictment then will follow and dog Israel for the next 2,000 years and so. For, uh, verse 5 to 11 further will elaborate this. And this is the flying scroll and the woman in the ephah. Then the angel who talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goes forth. And he said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a, and there is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, This is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth of it. Then lifted I up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. 
Now, this can start to become a little hairy. Um, you recall in Matthew 23, verse 31, that Jesus said, Wherefore you are witnesses against yourself that you are the sons of them who killed the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. The measure of your fathers can be tied right back into this measure of the ephah. The ephah was the most common Jewish measure, and it was about a bushel in size. And it therefore becomes a symbol of their trade and commerce. And it represents also in Matthew 23 the measure of their iniquity. The Jews survived historically as merchandisers in general, and by the time of Christ they were merchandising the truth that they possessed at that time, the Mosaic order. Everything they did by the time of Jesus, the Jewish scribes and Pharisee hierarchy, was for gain. They had turned the temple into a den of thieves. And recall Jesus drove the money changers out, condemning them. And Josephus and historians will confirm that the temple system was a monetary corporation. It got to the point that travelers coming to Jerusalem to keep the feast could no longer bring their own animals and use them for sacrifice because there's no way they qualified. They were always found to be blemished so that one was compelled to buy sacrificial animals from those that sold them there at the temple. In verse 6, this ephah is referenced in, as their resemblance through all the earth. Resemblance in Hebrew is the word I. Remember we said... Um, one of the words feeding into cherubim was the word resemblance, as resemblance of the majesty. Well, here the word re resemblance is the eye of the Jew was focused on their monetary and commercial ephah. Jesus had condemned them for making his father's house a den of thieves. Now, in verse 7 of Zechariah 5, you'll notice that the lead cover was a covering that was lifted up and it was to reveal a woman sitting inside. Lead is a base metal, needless to say. And it's in contrast, stark contrast, to the golden lampstand we've just been considering. It's a, it's a base metal. RSV is more clear. Behold, the leaden cover was lifted up and there was a woman sitting in the ephah. Now, lead as a metal is toxic. We know that from industrial waste and so forth. And lead is also used to keep both toxins in and to keep toxins out. The woman was hidden for a duration and therefore the leaden cover was taken off at a point in time and it was allowed the toxin the, the noxious woman, which is Babylonish influences that came back to Israel out of the captivity. They followed her back in their religious practices, um, morality, influences, 
and societal impact. These were the toxins that were let out. And lead melts much more quickly than gold, roughly around 400 degrees. So the prophetic clue we have here is that there was to be a meltdown at some point in history. And that meltdown was to occur in 70 AD. Now, the woman represented then the influences of Babylon, Babylonish materialism, and that permitted the ecclesiastical thieves and false swearers to flourish. And that's what was referenced on this flying scroll that had lies and perversions written on both sides of it. Now, in verse 8, the name of the woman is, we're told, um, wickedness or lawlessness. And Brother Thomas would inject the lawless one. So you remember that Zechariah received these first seven visions in 519 B.C. Um, the temple was finished in 516. The lead cover was to be off the ephah then from that time until the day of Christ. And the influence of Babylon and the Roman world, um, and we're told in Zechariah here that it was to be in the land of Shinar, verse 11. Shinar, you know, is rendered the land of the enemy's tooth. And this ought to make us think of the characteristics of Daniel's fourth beast. Jesus railed against his generation of Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he called them a generation of vipers, hypocrites, fools, and blind who swear by the temple, who swear by heaven, who clean the outside of the cup and not the inside. And thus he was denouncing the purity of the worship at that time. So instead, the Jewish rulers of the day were disappointed in Jesus. They didn't respond to the teaching of John the Baptist, who was doing his best to uh, cry out in the wilderness of confusion at that day and to lead people to Christ. They were disappointed. They hid their faces from him. We're told that they esteemed him not. They oppressed and afflicted him. And though he had borne their grief and carried their sorrows, healing their diseases, they scourged and crucified him between two thieves. Who were the two thieves? They were to be referenced here in parallel, and they were to be referenced by the lies that were written on both sides of the flying scroll, and the two thieves were to be manifested and represented in the two, the two women who had stork-like wings that were to bear this ephah and to take it away, to drive it out of the confines of Jerusalem, out of the safe harbor of now a corrupt temple worship system, and to take, take it into the land of Shinar, into Rome, in other words, the land of the enemies too. The two apostate daughters whose names identify Jerusalem and Samaria uh, represented by the two stork-like woman wings you might find referenced in Jeremiah 3, verse 6 to 10. And so 
let's just read that into the record. And the Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me, but she turned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby black backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So that's a reference. You can also read on your own Ezekiel 23, verse 4 to 5, which helps to identify these two corrupt daughters of Zion. Now, 70 AD marked the end of that dispensation, and it also marked the fulfillment of verse 8 in Zechariah 5. Um, Now, verse 9 continues with the contents of the ephah, or the collective Babylonish influence, along with the now corrupted Jewish truth. Um, It was lifted up by the two women with stork-like wings. A stork is an unclean bird, um, representing the two adulterous daughters, Judah and Israel now. And at this was described in Jeremiah 3. And now, in total, we are told, they are blown by an ill wind into the land of Shinar, or into the region of the enemy's tooth, a characteristic of Daniel's fourth beast, or dispersed into the Roman world. And the realm of the enemy's tooth was later to factor into the seat of the Roman Catholic apostasy. The wind driving them references the judgments of God. And upon that wicked generation and ongoing, we would say, um, through the armies of Titus, through various mediums, the driving judgment winds of God were to hound and to push the Jewish remnant now into the Roman Empire, into the underbelly of Europe, into Spain, driven out of Spain under Isabella in 1492, driven into Europe. They took up residence eventually, did they not, in Germany? And what happened with the events in Germany, with the the slaughter at the hands of Hitler? They had become comfortable in Germany, just like as in the destruction of Jerusalem at 70 AD, where Titus put his armies encircling Germany and then backed off. Those Jews who were watchful had an opportunity to run along the housetops figuratively, scoop up their families, and 
escaped the siege of Jerusalem. The Holocaust had, when you study it historically, a similar scenario. The rich Jewish hierarchy established in Berlin was too deeply rooted in the commerce of the day. They too had an opportunity to read the signs and to escape if they wanted to. Many did not, and many lost their lives. Now, we're told here some interesting things. Verse 10, Then said I to the angel who talked with me, Where do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build for it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon its own base. This is a most interesting verse. A house is a religious system. A house is what is referenced in Scripture about Yahweh's house, a house of prayer for all nations. This is to become an apostate house. This is to become the apostate house of Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church, the harbinger of every um, ill and foul bird. And this Jewish Judaizing imagery is to feed into the seed bit, bed which spun off the apostasy. And this is a this was a tough concept for me to get through my head, but um, uh, it's where our brethren commentators, brethren um, Thomas and H.P. Mansfield have drawn these conclusions, and when you look at things, you have to figure that this is what happened. The new house, historically, is two-pronged that was to be established by the Jewish ephah and the Babylonish influence inside that was to be now blown by the wind or the judgments of Yahweh out of Israel, out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, into the Roman world. It's two-pronged. Because of their clinging to the Old Testament and rejecting the new and rejecting Christ, the Jew, with their monetary skills, specifically their money management skills, represented by the ephah and their portable money scales during the Middle Ages, were to be able to identify to maintain their identity and their uniqueness to emerge at this end time as a witness. In essence, the Jews, in another way, had the mark of Cain which distinguished them. Now, where do I come up with a phrase like that? You have to get into the little parable at the end of Matthew 23, and as Brother Tommy referenced that the other day, he references the Jews, the hypocrites, as the blood of righteous Abel crying out of the ground. And Jesus was then identifying himself with Abel because in a few short hours his righteous blood was to be crying out of the ground as a witness. Well, if you reference Abel 
you've got to reference the counterpart, and that's Cain. And that strata of Jews were likened as Cain. And what did, what happened to Cain? A mark was put upon Cain. We can only wonder what that mark was. And he was driven off into the land of Nod. Nod means exile. The distinctive Jewish features that keep Jews Jews was their figurative mark of Cain. And they were driven off into the land of Nod, Shinar, the enemy's tooth, and there they would establish their own base. They would establish their own base historically um, in their monetary success, and they would contribute, because of their Judaizing influences, to the seedbed that would spin off the apostasy 200 years later, which came into full flower under Constantine. Now, let's take a look at what Judaizing is all about. And it's historically rooted in this scenario, and I feel it's misappropriate to apply it to contemporary Christadelphian ecclesias. Now, I'm quoting from Watchman, What of the Night, by Walker, Nichols, and Willie, page 22. And those authors are quoting from Mosheim's Ecclesiastical History. Quote, It will easily be imagined that unity and peace could not reign long in the church since it was composed of Jews and Gentiles who regarded each other with the bitterest aversion. Besides, as the converts to Christianity could not remove the prejudices which had been formed in their minds by education and confirmed by time, they brought with them into the bosom of the church more or less the heirs of their former religions. Thus, the seeds of discord and controversy were early sown and could not fail to spring up soon into animosities and dissensions which accordingly broke out and divided the church. The first of these controversies, which was set on foot in the church of Antioch, regarded the necessity of observing the law of Moses, and its issues is mentioned by Luke in Acts 15. This controversy was followed by many others, either with the Jews who violently attached, attacked the worship of their attached to the worship of their ancestors or with the proponents of a wild and fanatical sort of philosophy or with the such as mistaking the true genius of Christian religion abused it monstrously to the encouragement of their vices and the indulgence in their appetites and passions, end quote. So you get an idea of the churning of the early lampstand ecclesias. Now this then is further reference for us that the Babylonian influence permeated then the Israeli, um, the Jewish form of religion at that time. Now, this was taken literally because they were scattered, we're told, into the land of Shinar. Now, we have this reference for us in 1 Peter 5.13, which is an example of linkage. I like linkage in Scripture. It helps, it helps to uh, 
uh, preserve context. And this then you're reading in 1 Peter 5.13. After the the destruction of the Jewish state in 70 AD and at 130 and at 135 AD, um, Babylon became a center of Jewish learning and the so-called patriarch of Babylon exercised considerable influence over Jews throughout the eastern sector of the Roman Empire. And so we have this quote before us on the overhead from 1 Peter 5.13, the church that is at Babylon elected together with you greeteth you and so doth Mark my son. So this establishes a Babylonish um, ecclesial center uh, at that time. Now, we go back to our topic. We're about out of time. The term Judaizers, then, is the wastebasket term for the collective challenges this strata of Jewry caused in the early ecclesial movement. And after 96 AD, in the lampstand ecclesias of Revelations, which you find in chapters 2 and 3, they are referenced in their different garb as Nicolaitans, the synagogue of Satan, and followers of Balaam and Jezebel. To call something the synagogue of Satan, it's a Jewish term, synagogue, has the same idea as referencing Armageddon in the Hebrew tongue. You have to look at a Jewish resolution or scenario. The book of Hosea is most graphic, Hosea 4.13. They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms because the shadow of them is good. Therefore, your daughters will commit harlotry and your spouses will commit adultery. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Isn't everybody destroyed for lack of knowledge within Christadelphia? Isn't that where drifts and things start to happen generally? Destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Thus God did cast them aside. Hosea 4.19 should now make us think of the wind or the judgments of God driving the two storks and the ephah into the Roman world. Quote, The wind hath bound her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. And so thus we read in Zechariah 5.9, And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and heaven. So we'll stop there today.